The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast, will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the only wife of the six that he didn't know beforehand, and he didn't have some say in marrying. They had this very awkward first meeting where she didn't recognize him. She seemed to be a little unsophisticated, not as educated as some of the other wives. And he decided within a couple of days, he needed to get rid of her as quickly as possible. Welcome to One Day University. Talks with the world's most engaging and inspiring professors discussing their most popular courses. This podcast is your chance to discover some of our top-rated lectures on your own schedule. I'm Stephen Shragas. We're wrapping up this season by telling you the real stories behind the six wives of King Henry VIII. Everyone knows the awful fates of these women. There's even a rhyme to help remember. Divorced, beheaded, died divorced, beheaded, survived. But Georgetown history professor Amy Leonard says there's a lot of misinformation out there about them, including in that rhyme. There was no divorce for King Henry, only annulments. Amy also says while the popular Broadway musical Six is a great show and gets a lot right about the women, it also gets some things wrong, like Henry being duped by an inaccurate portrait of Anne of Cleves. Amy Leonard separates fact from fiction in her one-day university lecture, The Six Wives of Henry VIII. In addition to learning the real story about the wives, she says that we should also remember King Henry for more than his multiple marriages. Henry is hugely important for English history, and it's kind of sad in some ways that it gets completely overshadowed by his personal life and relationship with his wives. One of the most important things he does is, because of wanting a successor, is he breaks from Rome and he brings about the English Reformation. Now, there'll be lots of changes that happen after his time, but by breaking from Rome and setting up the king as the supreme head of church and state, he really changed the course of English history. I mean, he gives Parliament much 
much more power. They're the ones who actually annul the marriage and allow him to take over. That religious movement um, you know, transforms England into a Protestant nation. And so that was due to Henry. He himself was not that Protestant. He ends up pretty much Catholic for his whole life. He cared more about his own power than about religion. I mean, he puts England on to serve the European stage instead of what had been kind of a remote backwater. He's in connection with France, with the Habsburgs, with Spain. He really makes England something that has to be kind of reckoned with. And also, I mean, on a sort of cultural side, he's quite a Renaissance man. He thinks of himself as being very well educated. He cares deeply about culture and the arts and wants to bring that into England as well. So there are lots of other things he does other than get married six times. What's the biggest misconception about these six women who were all wives? I think that they can be easily summed up or described in one word. You know, one's the temptress or one's the loyal wife, one's the saint. And I think they're too often seen as pawns in history, that they're the victims so often of what happens rather than having any kind of agency of their own or any kind of influence of their own. They're very important in their own right for what they do as queens, what they do you know, within their courts, how much influence they might have on Henry and others around him. And so I think that they're too often talked about just sort of as these wives who are only understood in relationship to Henry and they're mostly terrible ends when in fact they have these rich lives that go beyond that. Wife number one, 1509, Catherine of Aragon. She was actually the widow of Henry's older brother, Arthur. How did she end up getting married to Henry? Well, Arthur dies young, and there's some debate over whether or not the marriage was ever even consummated. Catherine says it wasn't. And Henry VIII's father, Henry VII, who had arranged the marriage between Catherine and Arthur, didn't want to lose that connection. I mean, it was connecting to powerful Spanish monarchs. She had a huge dowry that she came in with, and Henry didn't want to lose that. So Henry was trying to figure out a way of keeping all of those positive things that came from the first marriage. So, Amy, they were married for nearly 24 years. And then the marriage ends, not in a divorce, but in an annulment. I know why, but I don't know the details. Can you explain them to me and to our listeners? Yes. So the marriage starts off fairly happily. Henry is happy. He's grown up with Catherine. He knows her well. And so he agrees to marry her. And so by all accounts, they have a very good and close relationship. But then the problem is, is that Henry wants a successor and he wants a male successor. And so Catherine has many, many pregnancies, but all of them end in miscarriage or stillbirths except for one. And so she's only able to have one viable pregnancy with Mary, a girl being born. And so Henry just feels that this is a sign from God that somehow he never should have married her to begin with, and that God is punishing him by not giving him a male heir. And this is very much the sexism of the time, the idea that only a man can rule, although there were other female queens throughout Europe in the 16th century in particular. But Henry is fixated on the idea that it's because he married his brother's widow that he needs to get this marriage annulled and marry somebody else that can give him a male heir. Then let's turn to the Bible for a bit. There's a reference in Leviticus that's sort of wrapped up in all of this. Can you explain that Bible passage to us and how Pope Julius II got involved? Yes. So it's from Leviticus 20, 21 of chapter and verse that says, if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. They shall be childless. Henry VII wanted to make sure that 
everything was as, you know, tied up neatly as possible. So he goes to the Pope, who is Pope Julius II, and asks for a special dispensation to sort of counteract Leviticus and say that it's okay for Henry to marry his brother's wife. And so Julius then gives the dispensation, and they think that this is something that will sort of strengthen the case. But in the end, it's going to become more of a problem later, because the later pope is not going to want to countermand what the previous pope had decided with this dispensation. Okay, I'm going to remember that. The Bible is complicated. Wife number two was Anne Boleyn. And there are a few conflicting stories about Anne's physical appearance. Do you know what she looked like? This is a fascinating question, and this gets to the whole kind of power of Tudor propaganda. And so that, you know, Henry and the other Tudors wanted to create their own story. And so once Anne later on gets written out, they do a great job of kind of airbrushing her out of history. And so we don't really know what she looked like. We have a bunch of different portraits, some of them saying that they're her, some of them that we aren't really sure. And there's a lot of difference in it. And so just in terms of having actual images of her, a lot of them were destroyed and a lot of them are unclear whether it's actually her. We have a lot of descriptions of her from the time, and most of those are from hostile sources. So they will say things like she had a sixth finger, she had a goiter on her neck, she had like warts. They make her seem fairly unattractive, which seems somewhat surprising that Henry would marry someone like that. What we do know, what seems to be pretty consistent, is that she had dark hair and she had really dark but lively and very attractive eyes. Like almost everybody comments on these eyes that showed intelligence, showed a vivacity, and that really drew people in. But I do find it interesting that we can't for sure say, and we have this for a couple of his wives, that we don't know for sure what they look like. The marriage to Anne led to the Reformation, the establishment of the Church of England. Can you explain that rather momentous event to us? Yes. And this is one of the things that Reformation historians debate endlessly of, you know, was this just the flip of a pen and Parliament's decision and that there was actually no kind of popular support, that this is a complete top-down effort by Henry. And in some ways it was. And so that Henry desperately wants to marry Anne and at some point is pregnant. I mean, she'd held him off for a long time. But when she's pregnant, Henry is fixated on the fact that this must be his male heir. God is now rewarding him. And so that he needs to have the marriage annulled. The Pope is not doing it. The Pope is not on his side now. And so, you know, that all he can do is to have to break from the Pope and that this is the only way that he's going to be able to get the marriage annulled and to get what he wants, which is a baby born legitimately, the assumption being that it's going to be a boy. So he gets Parliament to annul the marriage rather than the papacy. And in that moment, breaks from the authority of the church. And so he then has the act of supremacy, which puts him as the head of both the church and the state and has everybody, all the important people in England have to sign it, basically saying that the pope is no longer the head of the Catholic church. And so now we have the king as the head of it and that this sort of tangentially brings in the Reformation. That will start the process of the Reformation, but that really won't get completed until under Henry son, Edward VI, and then later on, even more so under Elizabeth. Speaking of momentous events, Anne ends up beheaded. How did that happen? 
this is one of the things that you know, certainly the history of this period tends to blame the wives a lot or some of the wives for what happens. I mean, Anne's number one failure is that she's not able to give Henry what he wants, which is a male child. So he gets this annulment. He gets to marry Anne. He's so excited. And then instead of the son that he's been assuming will come, it's Elizabeth. So now he has Mary and Elizabeth and the whole Reformation was for naught in his mind. Anne is also pushing her own agenda in some ways, and she's going to alienate people. She's not as politically savvy as she could be. There's a lot of debate over how much of this is Thomas Cromwell's fault or not, that Thomas Cromwell really was instrumental in her downfall. And so in the end, that's going to kind of undermine Anne through her own behavior and other people's kind of machinations. And so that'll end up where she's going to be accused of adultery. She's going to be accused of incest with her own brother. And so she'll be then tried for treason because cheating on the king is treason. And she will be convicted of that and then decapitated. So let's move on to wife number three, Jane Seymour, who finally produced the male heir that Henry wanted so badly. How did these two meet? I heard that he married her right after Anne's beheading. How did that happen so quickly? So Henry met Jane the way that he had met Anne and the way that he's going to meet some of his other wives is that she was a lady-in-waiting for the queen. So Jane had been a lady-in-waiting for Catherine of Aragon and then was also one for Anne Boleyn. And so she was just always around in the court and that he also knew her father. He claims that she's his favorite wife. And when he does a portrait of himself later on, when he's actually married to Catherine Parr, he does this portrait of him with Jane Seymour, who has been dead for over over a decade, and his son, Edward, and then his two daughters off to the side. So it's clear that she's the one that he has the most fondness for, I think, first, because she gives him a son. And so that is what he wants. She is the only one of his six wives who gives birth to a boy who survives to inherit the throne. And two, I think that, and this is a little bit perhaps cynical of me, she dies right after Edward is born. And so she doesn't cause him any more problems. She isn't around to kind of ask for anything more. Her motto, was bound to obey and serve. And so I think that she was definitely a much more controllable wife than the two previous ones for Henry. So I think all of that really appealed to Henry after going through two very strong-willed marriages with strong-willed women. After the break, the last three wives of Henry VIII, including one who gets a rare happy ending. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years 
and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're up to wife number four, Anne of Cleves. She's been referred to as the strategic wife. So what's her story? So after Jane dies, Cromwell and some others really see this as an opportunity for creating more political alliances. Neither Anne nor Jane had really given anything in a kind of political international way that often royal marriages were supposed to bring. And so Cromwell sees this as an opportunity to shore up their kind of Protestant connections. And so he's looking to the Protestant states, particularly anyone who can sort of help them against Charles V. And so Charles V is the great big Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain. He controls a tremendous amount of territory. And Cromwell is looking to sort of help support England against that, both politically and in a Protestant way. So he looks at Anne as being the daughter of a Protestant prince or pseudo-Protestant prince, but somebody who is a member of the Schmalkaldic League, which is a German league basically affiliated with Protestantism against Charles V, and so sees that Henry marrying Anne can tie him closer to these princes, closer to Protestantism, and help against what is seen as this big threat of the Habsburg Charles V. So it's the most pragmatic and political arranged marriage that Henry has. This one ends up in, surprise, an annulment, and this time an agreeable one, according to your lecture. Explain that and explain how this one was annulled as well. This is the only wife of the six that he didn't know beforehand and he didn't have some say in marrying and that they had this very awkward first meeting where she didn't recognize him and she didn't really seem to understand the courtly ways of the Tudor court. She seemed to be a little unsophisticated, not as educated as some of the other wives. This was something very kind of embarrassing to Henry and that caused him to turn against the marriage right from the beginning. And then it was really, you know, it was sort of doomed from the start where they could never consummate it. And he decided within a couple of days 
he needed to get rid of her as quickly as possible. She had been betrothed to somebody else, and so that caused complications. And so they were easily able to come up with reasons for annulling it. And Anne went along with it. And that is sort of the big difference between Anne and Catherine of Aragon. If she had gone along with the annulment, she probably would have been set up very well. But she refused. And she refused because they had been married for over 20 years, and they had a child together. And the child was made a bastard by the annulment. Anne had had no connection like that. And for Anne, you know, she saw her options. She knew what had happened to other wives. And she realized that, you know, it would make no sense at all to hold out. And so she said, fine, I am happy with the annulment. And Henry is very grateful for this. And he settles a very large payment on her, actually gives her one of the castles that had been in Anne Boleyn's family. And, you know, it's this huge settlement that she is able to live very comfortably on for the rest of her life. It seems like she ends up the best of the six wives. But we also have to remember that this was pretty humiliating for her as well. I mean, she gets rejected by the king. She can't go back home because she can't marry somebody else because then that's complicated as well for Henry. So she's sort of stuck in a country she doesn't know. She doesn't know the language very well. She's quite welcome at court. She gets along very well with both Elizabeth and Mary. And Henry, you know, calls her his dear sister and actually treats her better than he does any of his wives after that. So she does really make the best of it and make for quite a good ending. And she outlives all of the other wives. Wife number five, Catherine Howard. I heard she started out pretty well. And then things took a serious turn for the worse. And she ends up beheaded two years later. What happened? So Henry is absolutely smitten with her. She's very young. She has this vitality. She's beautiful. She's flirtatious. She's fun. But there's a serious age gap. He's 49 when they get married, and she's anywhere between 15 and 21. We don't actually know her real birth date. I would say she's closer to 17 or 18 when she gets married to him. He lavishes her with gifts and praise and really kind of uses her to sort of feel young again. So I think in those first days, she's really happy to be taken care of. She had grown up kind of poor in a lot of ways, and so that she's getting all of these gifts and she's a queen. And so I I think that she loves having that kind of influence and power. But Henry is not doing well. You know, he's only 49, but he had a hard life at that point, a lot of illnesses and injuries from his jousting. And so he was pretty cantankerous. He was starting to get more and more ill, starting to rage more and more. There's a lot of debate over, you know, maybe some brain damage that he had. That's hard for her to deal with as a young woman. And so she starts sort of turning away from him and looking for other people to kind of get comfort from. I think she gets a bad rap in the historiography in a lot of ways, but she also doesn't make very sensible choices. And so she is sort of falling in love with other people and putting that into writing. And so very quickly, it's going to be clear that she's committing treason because that's what happens when you cheat on the king. And so Henry is going to be extremely disappointed that yet again, he's chosen wrong and his wife has betrayed him. You described her entrance to the Tower of London for, I guess what you'd call her trial, as pretty gruesome. Yeah, so it's pretty sad for Catherine. And I think there's clear evidence that she was sexually assaulted as a young girl, probably when she was like 12 or 13, then had another affair with another older man when she was still very young. When she's put on trial for adultery, for treason, some of these old lovers are going to come back and testify against her and sort of talk about the sexual relationships they had, her supposed lover within the court, and then someone from earlier before she got married. Both of them testify against her. And because they've committed committed adultery with the king's wife or soon-to-be wife, they are both executed. 
And after their execution, their heads are put on spikes outside the Tower of London. And so when Catherine comes in for her own trial, she comes in through what's known as the Traitor's Gate, and the boat takes her past these pikes with her former lover's heads on top of them. And I just can't imagine what that must have been like for her. On to wife number six, the very last one, who was Catherine Parr. She actually outlived Henry for a little while. I've heard she had the most influence upon him in terms of culture, religion, the role of women, education of his children. What's that all about? So Catherine is fascinating. I think all the wise influence in some ways, but Catherine Parr and Catherine Aragon, we really sort of see it in terms of culture and education. And so for Catherine Parr, she is one of the great educated women of her day. She is a published author. She's the first published female author whose name is actually on the work that is printed. I mean, she was more classically Protestant than Henry was at this point, so she had to hide that a little bit. But that's going to be something that influences particularly Elizabeth. And so she has a good deal of say in how Elizabeth gets educated, who are the tutors for her, and Elizabeth gets this very, very good humanist education. Many see Catherine as being fundamental to that, although there's a little bit of debate over how much she was involved. But I think she was involved enough that it does make a difference, certainly for Elizabeth's later life. In terms of really lasting influence for both Mary and Elizabeth, Jane Seymour had started this, but Catherine Parr is able to kind of end it of getting both Mary and Elizabeth added back into the succession so that she gets Henry to, even though they're still technically illegitimate, she gets Henry to add them both in after his son, Edward VI, and so that Mary would be next, and then Elizabeth, and that most historians think that Catherine was really instrumental in doing that, and she had a very good relationship with both Elizabeth and Mary until after Henry died, and then she and Mary will have a falling out because of her next actions. Well, then fill us in. What happened to Catherine after Henry died? So they're married a couple of years. Henry dies. Before Catherine had married Henry, she had actually already been planning to marry somebody else, Thomas Seymour. They had known each other for a while and everything had been going sort of apace. But then when Henry offered for her, you know, you always take the king over anyone else. But after Henry died, she actually goes back to Thomas. So they end up getting married. And it's something of a scandal because they get married very quickly after Henry had died. You're supposed to have a mourning period of at least a year, particularly because you want to make sure or that the wife, the widow, isn't pregnant with the dead monarch's child. And so the fact that she gets married within a couple of months is really looked down upon. People are very critical about it, and particularly Mary. And this is what's going to break the relationship between Mary and Catherine Parr, is that this is seen as kind of a betrayal of the father, and that she's married Thomas Seymour and sort of moved on in this way seems very unseemly to Mary and others. So she's only married to Thomas for about a year, before having a child and dying, before she could see him grow up. One last question. How unusual is this story of Henry VIII and his six wives? Is there anything else like it? Can you compare him to any other monarchs in this regard? There really is nothing else like this. Plenty of monarchs get married multiple times. Plenty of monarchs will have an annulment to either have a better marriage that gives them better alliances or to get a male heir. All of that is true. We have a bigamist in Germany, Philippa Fessa, who has two wives. So, you know, there are little nuggets of this everywhere. Six wives, two of whom are executed and two of whom have annulments. That's really unusual. 
there is nothing quite like that. And I think that that is one of the reasons why people at the time were sort of shocked by it. The French king is writing things like, you really need to do better with who you're choosing to be your wife. This was gossip for the continent just as much as it is for us now. And I think that that's one of the reasons that it has this hold on our imagination. And you have all of these movies and TV shows and musicals that go over it. And it's why it's the main thing that he's remembered for, which is unfortunate because there's a lot else that was going on in his reign. But when you know you do something this kind of out of the box and just so different and crazy from what everybody else is doing, you know, it's going to be something that's going to be part of your living legacy. Amy, thanks so much for this. We just appreciate you taking the time to tell us six great stories. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us here at One Day University. Sign up at our website, onedayu.com, to become a member and access over 700 full-length video lectures from the world's finest professors. You can also download our app. There you can watch Georgetown University Professor Amy Leonard's lecture on the six wives of Henry VIII, as well as all the talks you learned about in this podcast. One Day University is a production of iHeart Podcasts, and School of Humans. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app. You can also check out other Curiosity podcasts to learn about history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.